Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. I don't know how many of you have had this experience, but I have a number of people that I can think of in my life that when I think of them, I, I think, why are you still stuck there? It seems like they're in a perpetual state of immaturity. You talk to them over and over and over again, you share with them truth. And there seems to be an inability on their part to move the needle towards maturity. Most of us that have been around for a while recognize that we mature best by experience. When we experience life, it gives us the opportunity to make decisions, those decisions cause us to gain understanding or knowledge. And what comes with that is that all too infrequently used thing in our world today, wisdom. The ability to use knowledge or understanding correctly. Often people confuse wisdom with knowledge and understanding itself. I can tell you I've met people that have multiple PhDs that can't tie their shoes. So knowledge isn't necessarily going to make you wise. It is what you do with knowledge that determines whether you're wise or not. And that is no truer than in the life of the believer. So what are the marks of maturity in the life of a believer. And so James now shifts gears in verse 5, and we'll take down to verse 12, and gives us some clues, some abilities, some things that we ought to know if we're going to truly be maturing in our relationship with the Lord. So would you pray with me? We'll pick up here in verse 5 as we discover these marks that are signs of wisdom, maturity. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for your long-suffering with me. Lord, as I have spent so many days behind, it seems, the same situation as you endure with me as I make those mistakes and as I learn from them. And God, I pray that as we sit here tonight as your family, Lord, in your house, in your place of worship, God, a place dedicated to you, that we would take up this cause of maturing in you. Make us wise in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you might want to circle that. You might want to underline it. If you have a red pen, put in your margin of your Bible, that's me. I have yet to meet the person who is all wise. I really haven't. And I've met some very wise people, 
but I have yet to meet especially anyone who is all wise in the things of the Lord. And so no matter how wise you may think you are, if any of you lacks wisdom, that is for sure me. I will put my name on that list. You can put me at the top. There are times when, Lord, I don't act on what I know in a way that exercises that wisdom that I have in you. Let him ask of God. Does that seem pretty easy to you? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That's exactly how simple this actually is. Because God desires for us to be wise. Not just all-knowing, not just intellectual, not just informed, but God desires for us to be wise. And that actually is the bigger problem for most people than having knowledge itself. I have met people with very little knowledge that are excruciatingly wise. People that you would look at them and, you know, it's like you don't expect them to speak the words that they speak, to handle the things they handle, to do the things that they do. They are wise in spite of the fact that maybe they don't have a high degree of education. Or perhaps they've not been through a tremendous amount uh, of things in their life, yet they are seemingly wiser than their age or their education would indicate. Notice the percentage that will receive and how much you will receive when you simply ask. Who gives to all? That's kind of everybody. Liberally. In other words, with generosity in his heart and without reproach. In other words, if you come to God, not only is he prone to and desires to give you wisdom when you need it, but he also gives it to everyone who asks and he gives it without measure and he doesn't condemn you because you've come and asked. You see, sometimes in our modern world, we're kind of afraid to ask for help, amen? Especially if you're a man. And especially if you need directions to somewhere. So rather than gaining wisdom by actually stopping and asking somebody who's actually been to where it is that you want to go, what do we do? Oh, I can figure it out. And about an hour and a half later, after the second time you've been around that same stretch of road, and after you've gone past that same set of houses, and after you've retraced your steps over and over and over and over and over again, you finally stop and you ask somebody for directions. Amen? The same principle is in view here in James chapter 1 and verse 5. We should be asking God how to get to where we are going frequently and often unless you like trips around the block. If you're that person that just wants to do the mundane, the boring, and the tedious, you want to go round and round and round with very little effect, then James's suggestion is, if you need wisdom, ask of God who gives to everyone who asks liberally, and he's not going to get down on you for asking. And it will be given to him, her, them. But here comes a condition. Here's the condition. Here's the condition, church. You must ask in faith. 
You have to believe that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You have to actually believe that asking God produces results. You can't ask of God and, you know, think it's like some wishful thinking. You have to ask of God in faith with no doubting, zero doubting, with no doubt. For he who doubts is like the wave of of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, I am not aware of how many of you in the room have ever been out on the open ocean or sailed your own boat or been out in a place where there are wind-driven waves and sea when the swell is large, but it is one of the most chaotic environments that you will ever find yourself in about which you have zero control. If you're prone to seasickness, you know what I'm about to say. If you're out on the water and it is bumpy, there is nothing you can do about it. And until you get off the water and then you've been off the water, maybe for 24 hours, you're still sick. Your mind has been so affected by the waves that it can no longer get a point of reference anywhere in this world. And so your equilibrium is off. You are tossed to and fro in such a way that you cannot find a point of reference. And that is exactly what James is saying. That's what the Holy Spirit instructs James. He says, look, a person who doesn't believe God for who he says he is and what he says he will do, that person who doubts is just like somebody who's been out on the open ocean and they are completely disoriented from seasickness. They haven't got a clue which way is up. And even if they lay down and close their eyes, they're still not going to see correctly. They're tossed to and fro, driven by the wind. For let not that man, that woman, that person suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Our prayers, our desire to mature, our desires to grow, our desires to get wise in the things of the Lord must be accompanied by ever-increasing faith. Our desire to mature in the Lord must be accompanied by ever-increasing faith. You are not born with, at your salvation experience spiritually, all the faith you will ever need. You need to grow in faith. That is actually a sign of maturity. In other words, you trust God for bigger, better, deeper, larger things as you grow. As you mature, instead of praying, Lord, give me a job, it's Lord, please take care of my family even if I don't have a job. Very different prayer, isn't it? They're the same subject matter, but those are two very different prayers. Do you believe that by faith? It's one thing to pray asking God for a job. It's another thing to ask God to take care of your entire family when you know you're not going to get a job. Which one of those requires more faith? Obviously the latter of those two things. One requires a job, the other requires a miracle. Different type of faith, isn't it? For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. These are contrasting things. The lowly person is exalted. The person who rests in the everlasting arms of Jesus ultimately ends up being exalted. But the rich person, the person who thinks he already knows what he needs to know, has what he needs to have, she is that person that thinks she's got it all going on. Everything is all together. The I's are dotted. The T's are crossed. There's nothing more to be learned. There's nowhere to go in your life. That person will one day be humiliated. Because God wants to keep us humble. God actually resists the proud. But the humble he will not cast out. He's actually near to those who realize you don't know it all. You haven't been where you need to go. You you haven't bought every t-shirt. You just have a couple. You don't have every hat, every pin. You, You haven't been to everywhere. You haven't experienced everything. And so you're looking to the Lord to give you more of what you don't have. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes. And so the rich man will also fade with his pursuits. And so this is simply a contrast. This is not a knock on the rich, and it's not an exaltation of poor. Neither are inherently better than the other. It's simply saying that the person who looks at God in the right way will be comfortable exactly where they are. We'll get more on this in a bit. For blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he's been approved, he received the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Fact of the matter is, maturity requires wisdom, church. It always requires wisdom. I've spent a majority of my life actively engaged in all kinds of construction type things. I'm still periodically get engaged in those types of things. And I can tell you there are about 10,000 ways to do everything in construction. It is amazing to me how many times you you look at a certain situation, you've done that singular thing, you've hung trim over your doors or put on window casing, and it it goes the same way 10 times out of 10. And then the 11th time comes up, and it's like, "Hmm, that's not going to work. You know who you go to? The person who's done that particular style or that particular thing or that particular application before, and you ask them for wisdom. How do I approach this particular situation? And the same is true for absolutely every discipline. We could be talking about medicine. We could be talking about science. We could be talking about farming. We could be talking about ranching. We could be talking about being a seamstress. We could talk about virtually anything that you would want to throw out as a subject matter. And you will always get to a place to where you will find something that you have not done before and you need some help. 
Now imagine that the source of all wisdom is God. Isn't it weird how the last person we often go to is the one who knows the most? So how does this begin? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of my friends, my spouse, my siblings, my mom, my dad. Now, they may be able to give you some wisdom. But truly, if you have something in your life that you're really searching for wisdom, the ability to use what you know correctly, if you're looking for that kind of wisdom, the first place we should be going is God. And yet, very often, it's the last place we go. There's a story in your Bible that most of you probably know, and it's the story of Job. And probably most of you understand the beginning of it. Job, it is said about him in Job chapter 1, that he is righteous, and so much so that God brags about him and says, like him, there's not a single other person on the face of the whole earth that is as righteous as Job. That's how the story begins. And then his life comes apart at the seams. Amen? He is tested and tried. He loses his family. He loses his fortune. And he ends up sitting in the city dump with boils on his body, scraping those boils with pieces of broken pottery. Now, I'm pretty much thinking that's the definition of a horrible week. Amen? It's like you wake up, you're rich, God thinks you're amazing, and by the end of the week, you've got nothing, you're sitting in the dump, and your own wife tells you to curse God and die. And by the way, that's exactly what it says in the book of Job. Job's wife says, you're so miserable, why don't you just curse God and die? Then comes his three friends, Zophar, Bildaz, and Eliphaz. And they basically convince him, well, it's because you're a wretched, horrible person, God has cursed you. Now, I don't know if you've ever had friends that try and help you like that, but that's not what you need in that moment. Probably a little compassion would go a long ways. But after he goes through all of this, by the time you get to chapter 38, I want you to see how God ministers to him. You see, because we are prone to ask, and I think we could all agree that if you were in Job's situation, we'd be going, why, 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 why me, Lord? Why now, Lord? Why this, Lord? That'd be pretty rational, wouldn't it? I think it would. Matter of fact, I've asked this question, but I want you to notice what God does. Verse 1 of chapter 38, the book of Job, and then the Lord answered Job out of the tornado, out of the whirlwind, out of the storm, and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? And I strongly encourage you to read the rest of the chapter. Notice that God doesn't ask him a why or answer a why question. He gives him a who question. Says, Job, who are you compared to me? 
And that's the contrast. It's like we're prone to ask why when the question should be who? Or maybe even what? It's like, God, what are you trying to teach me through this situation? And so James reminds us this is really the way that we are going to mature and move forward in our faith. And Job finally gets the, gets the picture. And by the time we leave Job, he is restored, his family's restored, he, ha- he has increased his wealth by tenfold, and he's a happy guy. But he needed a lesson, and that lesson was God knows some things that you don't know. God has capacities you don't have. He has tidbits of your life's puzzle that you don't have yet. He has things that are available to you if you will ask him that you haven't asked for. The question is, who do you turn to? Where do you turn? Who are you asking? And are you asking the right questions? The mark of a mature believer is that we would ask of God and he would give it liberally. The Greek word that is translated in English wisdom is Sophia. And it isn't just simple knowledge. We're so prone to think of it that way, but that isn't really what it is. And in a truly biblical sense, the easier way to understand it is if you could grasp the mind of God, the experiences of God, the totality of everything God knows, and you could apply it to your life, you would have supreme wisdom. You get the picture? So it's not just knowing the things, it's knowing what God knows. It's knowing how to respond the way God would respond. It's working in a situation the way God would work in the situation. It's literally you would now possess the totality of God's supreme thinking ability, which would then translate into you acting as if you were God. That's what godly wisdom actually is. Anybody need that? I do. I would love to think the way God thinks. Reason the way God reasons. Understand the way God understands. And then ultimately that produces actions that would be also in line with God's perfect will, wouldn't it? Because I would have what he knows. I would then take those thoughts And I would act on them according to the way he would see that situation. That's wisdom. I think we can all grow in that. I know I can. When you have that kind of reality that comes into your life, you have some understanding that goes far beyond what you have learned as as a matter of life. We all have life experience. There are things that you know. There are things that you do intuitively. You do them instinctively. I don't know how many of you have been tracking with what's going on with Simone Biles as she's pulled out of the all-around event in women's gymnastics. She's the greatest gymnast that's ever lived. And she certainly knows how to do gymnastics, amen? But she also had the wisdom to realize that right now her mind's not in the space to where when she's in the air, that her body is going to respond like it normally would. So in wisdom, she recognizes that even though I absolutely know how to do these these gymnastics tricks, now's not the time to do them. That's wisdom. 
You see, she's quite capable. But she's not really capable right now because of some other things going on in her life. And in a very similar way, there are times when we have the basic knowledge we need. We have the understanding that we need. We may even have the intuition about certain things that we need. We may have actually been down that road before and even been through those circumstances. But this time may be different. And it's in this time that we should be seeking God. Even though you've been down the road before. Even though you think you know the answer. One of the things that when I'm doing marriage counseling, it is always my prayer. It's like, Lord, there's little doubt I will have heard the basic story before. Can I just tell you that there's only about 10, 15 things that couples really struggle with in marriage in a general sense? I can name them for you. Communication's going to be at the top. Finances is going to be in there. Sexual sin's going to be in there. Children, child rearing's going to be in there. Parenting's going to be in there. Family relationships are going to be in there. But you know what I'm missing? The individual specific understanding of that particular situation in that moment. I've given countless hundreds and probably thousands uh, of pieces of information to couples over the year. Here, here's how, over the years, here's how you would, you know, this is what I would do in that situation. Here's what the Bible says. But what I don't have is what that person needs exactly in that moment. That's where I need wisdom. This is how we mature. This is how we grow. One of the greatest minds to ever walk this earth, Albert Einstein, was so concerned about the Big Bang Theory. Now, I think we would all agree, his mind was like levels above most of our minds in this room. You know, on a bad day, he probably thought things that we aren't even capable of thinking or imagining. But he got to the place, as he's realizing, he puts forth this, this theory, which will ultimately become adopted as a law of physics, that energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, E equals mc squared thing, and they get to this, well, how did the universe get here? And so the Big Bang Theory comes along, and he actually begins to think, now wait a second, Wisdom says if there was a starting point, then maybe there was a point when it didn't exist. Where did it come from? It made him come to terms with the creator. And so wisdom, here's a brilliant man who knows pretty much all anyone has ever known about our physical universe that's going, well, this is something different. What do I do with this? We're in the same spot every single day regarding what God knows versus what we know and what we should be asking him for and what we already have. There's a presumption here that we actually lack 
something. As human beings, especially as human beings here in America, we like to think we already know everything. And so it's hard for us to admit that we don't know what we need to know or don't have the wisdom that we need. And so this word that's used here, lack, comes from a Greek word that means destitute, wanting. It actually can even be translated defective. In other words, the wisdom I already have is actually defective. It's not good enough. It isn't what I need. It implies that I need something else. And so as we mature, I have to remember that I'm actually, relative to what God has, I am defective. I need what he's got. And so when I start with that premise, when my starting place is, God has something I don't have. I'm deficient, I'm defective, then I'm going, I need what you've got. So I'm prone to ask him. Now notice what he says about what he will do when we ask. We have to request this. It doesn't just naturally come to us. We have to request wisdom. Let him ask of God. It's a simple statement. We'll ask him. One of the reasons I love the book of James is because it just has almost zero fluff in it. It's like, well, duh, why don't you ask him? You don't have it, you're deficient, why don't you ask the guy who's got it? Now, I don't know if you guys do this. When you go into your doctor, do you walk into the doctor's office and go, I already know what you're going to say. I actually don't even want to talk to you because, you know, I know more than you do. I just came in to see here to see if, you know, you know, I could mock you in some way, shape, or form. No, you don't do that. You go into the doctor's office believing that the doctor has information, has knowledge, and has wisdom you don't actually possess. You are deficient medically. Do you understand where I'm tracking here? So when you go into the doctor's office, you're asking him or her to diagnose your condition, right? Why do you do that? Because they are far wiser than you. Now, wouldn't you be considered a little bit daft? Wouldn't you be kind of dense if you walked into your doctor, the doctor gives you a diagnosis, and you go, that's not right. <laughs> this is how we treat God relative to wisdom. God has it all. We don't. He has the answers. We don't. We talk to him, he says, well, my word says, and we go, no, you don't. Nope, not doing that. Sorry, you're wrong. And so church, notice how this plays out for us. This word that's used here for ask is ayateo. And that particular word is always and only used of an inferior asking a superior. Do you understand the difference there? This is not you asking someone who's a peer. This is you asking someone who's superior in every way, shape, or form. This is you walking in and, and you know, this easily understood in the child and parent relationship. 
the parent is clearly the superior. It's like, Dad, you know, I really, can I borrow the car? Well, Dad's got the keys to the car. Dad's got the car. Mom's got the keys to the car. Mom's got the car. It's in their name. You have to have permission. They have everything you need in order for your request to be granted. And so you ask them as an inferior to a superior. That's the premise in this particular passage. It's like, if I go to God recognizing I am inferior and he is superior, if I ask of him, he actually wants to give me what I ask for. He's not saying, well, I'm not talking to you right now. No, he actually loves us. And so his desire is to actually give you what you're asking for, provided it's within his will. And so he says, why don't you ask me? I won't reproach you. Have you ever gone to people who have superior knowledge in some subject than you do, and you ask them and they treat you with complete and utter disdain? Like, you are such a fool. And they demean you, and they look at you, it's like, why would you ask that? That's a dumb question. God won't do that. Every question is a good question. Every ask is a good ask. God knows your heart, and so he's not going to reproach you. That's what that word means. He's not going to treat you like you're a, you know, a lower being, even though we are. He's going to, Jeff, thank you for coming to me. I would be delighted to help you with this. I want to give you what you need so you can grow, so you can mature. So here's what we're going to do. And he begins to pour these things out. And we can see this throughout Scripture. And rather than belabor the point, probably most of you are familiar with that story in 1 Kings and Solomon uh, has been crowned king, and, and David is not. And so Solomon's this, this young guy, and he ultimately ends up, by the time we get to chapter 3, these two ladies, each of them have a son, and one son dies. And the two of them come, and there's only one child left. And Solomon is given the task of, you know, well, whose child is it? And so he says, bring me a sword. Here's some wisdom for you. Bring me a sword, we'll cut the child in half. Why does that work? Because the one whose child it actually is, is the one that's going to say, I'll relinquish my rights, I'll relinquish my claim, because I love my child, I'll let the other woman have him. That's wisdom. He could have made him go through, well, you know, can you tell him, does he have a birthmark or, you know, whatever? You know, do you remember, you know, he's, how tall is he? No, Solomon cut right to it. Where do you think that came from? It came from the Lord. And in fact, as Solomon authors this book that we call uh, the book of Proverbs, all this wisdom, that's the type of wisdom. So much so that the Queen of Sheba travels from the middle of Africa, the Horn of Africa, to meet with Solomon because she wants to meet the wisest person that's on the earth. That was God's wisdom. You remember what Solomon was given? He said, God tells Solomon, ask me anything. Do you remember what Solomon asked for? He asked for wisdom. And God gave it to him liberally, without reproach. And so this is still in play for you and I. I think we just forget this principle sometimes. We don't ask. 
Just like these two women. And we can see this in the life of Jesus. Remember, the Pharisees were always trying to trap Jesus. So in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 22, we have this, you know, here, well, are you going to pay taxes? Are you going to render taxes unto Caesar? You remember what Jesus did? Whose image is on this coin? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God's. He could have said no. He could have done what a lot of people are doing right now. Well, I'm just going to rebel. You know, I'm God. I'm not giving Caesar anything. No, he gave Caesar what was Caesar's. Caesar's could have all the money. Jesus actually owns everything. He does the same thing with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Here's this woman. Well, she's had all these husbands. What are you going to do? What does Jesus say to him? He who is among you without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they all disappeared one at a time. What does he end up able to say to the woman? Hmm, where are your accusers? I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. That's wisdom. If Jesus had sat there and go, okay, well, let's bring all the guys here and let's find out who's really at fault. Do you think that would have solved anything? Absolutely nothing. Why? Because every single one of those relationships was actually adultery. And they were trying to trap Jesus into approving of adultery. Jesus never approved of it. He actually condemned it. And so he turned the tables on them with wisdom. He didn't try and ferret out all the juicy details out of this woman's life. He said, look, let's use some wisdom here. That wisdom is available to you. That same wisdom. But you know what? You can ask for it. You can beg for it. But unless you ask for it, unless you beg for it, it's going to be a hard commodity to come by. You should want to receive it. Did you know that there's a place that you can go and find it all day, every day? It's sitting in your lap right now. It's your Bible. Because wherever God has already spoken about anything, therein lies wisdom. So if you want an answer to something that God has already given us the answer to, don't you think it would be wisdom for you to go to the answers you already have? You can find those in the Word. There are thousands of pieces of information available to you about life and living, things that have already been decided, been done. Ways that you should live life versus ways you should not. Things that you should do and things you should not. It's already in your lap, in, your, in the Bible. So sometimes we just simply avoid that particular route. The writer of Psalm 119. You, through your commandments have made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever within me, and I have more understanding than all of my teachers. Verses 98 and 99 of this beautiful psalm that in its entirety is about the word in you. 
But you know what we do sometimes? We just refuse it. And we certainly refuse it when we disagree with what the Bible says. It is amazing to me how many Christians actually know what the Bible says, but they refuse to do it. Can I tell you something? That's really unwise. That is, that might be the epitome of being unwise. Because God's not changing his mind. He's not going to have one opinion one day and have it be part of the canonized scripture and then the following day, I no longer think that. Why? Because those that he would have condemned by that word previously would have to be released from the bondage of hell if they perished in that sin. So God's not changing his opinion on some things that are pretty big in our society right now. Do you know that God still hates divorce? He's not for it. He hates it. Just because we have laws that make it okay doesn't mean God likes it. God actually hates it. So when you're contemplating it, you're actually going against, in a general sense, and I'm not talking about every situation, in a general sense, divorce itself is not God's perfect will. It might be an allowance exactly as Jesus said. The death of innocent unborns, not God's plan ever. Fornication, having sexual relationships with somebody before you're married, also not okay with God. So if you want some wisdom, God's word already says these things. It's up to us to do them. And if we don't, we're being unwise. And being unwise comes with a, sometimes some circumstances you don't want. I mean, people want to debate with me. You know, well, you know, I just think we've come to a different place regarding, you know, same-sex attraction and, you know, this non-binary gender thing and all these things that are going on. If you're a believer, God's word says what it says. God's not buying any of that reasoning, none of it. That's not to be mean. That's not to say that God doesn't love those people that are struggling with those things. But because God said it, I'm supposed to believe it and then act on it. That's the baseline of wisdom. That saves me from having to go around endless debates about all kinds of things. God is not okay. All love is not love. That is a statement from the world that is not what God's word says. So when someone comes to you with that as their baseline, it is unwise for you to try and work your way around that statement and go, well, you know, I I don't know. No, I do know. Just like I know it's not okay to be bitter and unforgiving and hate-filled and angry. It's not okay to be a gossip. So if you're a busybody and a gossip, can I just tell you it's unwise and it's against God's plan for your life. So if that's you and you're wandering around thinking that your gift is telling stories about other people, You aren't hearing from God. It's wrong. You're being unwise. If you think it's okay to divide the body of Christ, it's really unwise. You know how I know that? Jesus told me so. 
I would that you and these with you would be one as I and my Father are one. The Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. It should not be devouring itself. You see how that kind of wisdom works? How many problems do you think that would solve right off the get-go? You think that'd solve a few problems? You think you'd have some understanding in areas of life and living that would cause you to act appropriately according to the belief that you're supposed to have as a Christian? That's wisdom. You see, as a believer, when I go against what God says, that's lacking in wisdom, and that makes God have to teach me lessons that are not fun. Because then he will prove that he's actually wise. That he meant what he said. You see, I can refuse the wisdom that God is offering. And the chief way that I do that in this world is by not hearing what God has already said. So if you want a place to start, get a Bible with a topical index in the back of it. Or pick up a topical index to your Bible. And just look up those verses. Like, what does it say about drunkenness? Oh, there it is. You know what wisdom is? I wouldn't go there. You know what it says about having your mind debased by any type of substance? Oops, wouldn't go there. You see, I don't have to ask God those questions. He's already given me the answer. So wisdom is, I just do what God's already said. I don't have to debate with him. I don't have to say, well, you know, I just really don't. I mean, come on, God, you're old. People tell me that, and they're correct. But God is the one who was and is and is to come. So if he was right in the past and he's right today, he's going to be right in the future. So whatever he says, he's going to be right. Guess who ends up wrong when I disagree with him? Me. That's unwise. That's not mature. That is being childish. Let me be clear. That's being childish. The children of Israel constantly repeated this thing of, well, God said it. We kind of sort of believe it, but we're not going to act on it. It's childish. When you think about what the children of Israel did when they were wandering in the wilderness, they had nothing to eat, right? What did God do? Provided for them. What did they do after that? Whined and complained. They didn't have anything to drink. God provided for them. What did they do? Whine and complain. God took care of them in the wilderness. What did they do? Whine and complain. You get the picture? It's never a good idea when God has spoken, God has taken care of you to whine and complain about what God has done. Because he takes you back to places that you really don't want to go. What did the children of Israel do? They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, relearning those same lessons over and over again. They failed to reach maturity. They wouldn't grow up. In essence, they did what the Apostle Paul called staggering there in Romans chapter 4. They walked as a, a drunken person in this world. 
I can't have that kind of faith. My faith needs to be steadfast. It needs to be immovable. It needs to be abounding in the Lord. That's where I walk in that sweet spot. And that takes a lifetime. Church, brothers and sisters, friends, maturity takes a lifetime. I don't want anybody to think that I think that I'm above what I just said because I'm not. There are things, there are blind spots we all have in life. There are things that you're going through right now that you've probably been through before and you know which way you need to go and you still choose to go the wrong way. Praise God for his patience in working with us a whole lifetime. Amen? Start to finish. Praise God for his mercy and grace in my life. Because sometimes I'm a little dense. I'm sure there are, you know, probably not many, but there's probably a couple of other of my dense brothers and sisters here in this room watching online, and you're going, well, yeah, me. The truth is we all are dense in spots, amen? And it usually revolves around things like this, deeply embedded thoughts and behaviors, things where you've been hurt, things where you've been wrong, things you would be prone to hang on to, and so you kind of make up your own little world right there, and it's like, well, if they just understood why I think like this, then it'd be okay. And God's going, no, Jeff, it's not okay. That still is not good. You still need to love people who don't love you, because that's what I do. That's wisdom. You know what happens when you do that? You get set free. The bondage of bitterness, the bondage of unforgiveness, the bondage of hate, the bondage of anger, the bondage that you're in gets released when you agree with God. When you go, God, you're right, I'm wrong, change me, not God, you're wrong, I'm right, change them. Because you know what God does? He leaves you, you, and you're still stuck with you. You're still the same person that woke up yesterday and you have the same problems. You didn't grow. And so you're stuck in that place and you drag it around with you. You know, I, I, I equate it to, have you ever seen those people at the airport that you wonder where they're going because they have those luggage train things and there's like 14 suitcases all linked together and it looks like a little mini train. It's like, who needs all that stuff? A lot of people's lives in Christ are like that. It's like they've got bag after bag after bag after bag of refuse from their life. Trash, garbage, hurts, anger, bitterness, junk, stuff. They're, they're going through the airport and you watch them. They, they're like leaning into it so hard because it's so heavy. They're dragging this train of luggage with them. And a lot of Christians very unwisely are dragging their junk with them everywhere they go. They won't do what God says. Forgive. Don't be bitter. Let go of that anger. Stop hating people. Quit gossiping. Don't be a talebearer. Why am I saying all these things in the negative light? Because the Bible principally tells us what we should not be. When you look at those lists, it's like, don't do this, don't do that. 
And then here's the things that are the result. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, self-control, and about which there is no law on those things. But he gives us all these things that we shouldn't be. Why are they there? Because they'll hurt you. They'll make your life miserable. They'll destroy you if you let it. And the enemy's going, okay, hang on to those things. So wisdom is telling you, agree with God. Be merciful if you want mercy. Forgive if you want forgiveness. You who find your brother or sister in a fault, the ones of you who are spiritual, you condemn such a one. No, it's just you restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, lest you yourself also be tempted in the same manner. You see, the world's answer is trying to destroy them more than they've destroyed you. And wisdom says, this will blow them away. Do good to them. Be kind to them. When you are kind to someone who has hurt you, it freaks them out. They are lost as to what to do. They don't even know what to say. You've taken the weapons right out of their hands because they don't know what to hit you with anymore. That's exactly why Jesus said, and if they strike you, turn to them the other cheek. He wasn't really saying stand there and take a beating. He's basically saying if you want this to be over quickly, once you stop resisting, people generally give up. There's really not much sense in in berating somebody who won't argue. But what do we do? Instead of being slow to speak, as we will see, and quick to listen, we're quick to wrath. And that just creates more things. You see, the Bible is full of wisdom. It's literally filled with it. But it takes a lifetime. If you want your life enlarged in a spiritual sense, if you want to be more useful to the king, you have to grow. If you want your life to be enlightened, if you want to be more like the king, you have to grow. You have to mature. If you want your life to be ennobled or to be more noble or to have a loftier goal, then you have to mature. There's no other way. Otherwise, you just stay an infant in the Lord. And so what's going to happen is is you're going to advance to the extent that you submit to advancing. But you can stay right where you are. You can not grow. You don't have to mature. You can cling to that little tad of faith that you got to believe. But you're not going to be happy there. God wants you to grow, and you should want to grow. Notice that he says, James gives us an example. The rich being made low. That's a tough thing. Exalting people who don't have much, that's a hard thing. That's a mature thing. That's something we don't naturally gravitate towards. But notice how this is phrased. The the rich man will fade away, but the lowly man will be exalted. Those are contrasting values that the world doesn't understand. But when I count myself as already dead... Every single day is up from dead. Amen? 
You see, when I already count my life not dear, then everything is better than that. When I say, I don't matter, the king matters, then every day has things in it that matter. But the person that already thinks they're up here, only place you can go is down. But the person that's down here, the only place you can go is up. It's a very simple thing. Maturity is like that. When you stop thinking you've already arrived, then you can go up. If you think you're already there, you're going to go down. That's why Proverbs reminds us there in Proverbs 30, I really don't want to be poor. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me. Give me food that's convenient for me, lest I be full and deny the Lord who bought me. You see, when we recognize that God is actually the supplier of everything, then we stop living our lives for everything because he desires to take care of your needs richly in Christ Jesus. So he's promised to do that. So I'm not clinging to riches as a, as a means to a, a happy life. That's why Jesus constantly made that contrast when he's speaking to the Pharisees. He said it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say impossible, by the way. He just said it's more difficult. Why? Because they already think they're there. They're relying on their house. They're relying on their car. relying on their bank account. The poor person doesn't have anything, so everything looks better to them. It's just easier. The Apostle Paul kind of put all this into place when he said there in Philippians 4, I've learned how to be content wherever I am. Wherever you are, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. As long as you're looking to God to keep maturing. The poor person can grow and the rich person can grow. The person with everything can keep growing and the person with nothing can grow. Ultimately, they're going to occupy the same heaven, amen? Amen. There's no class structure in heaven. We're going to receive some rewards when we first get there at the Bema seat of Christ. Those rewards, those crowns, those things that we get because of the things that we've done here on earth, those crowns called the Stephanos, which is the victor's crown. It's the same thing as the medal that you get in the Olympics. It's a sign that you won that event. Everybody gets that one. Everyone gets a victor's crown. There are also some crowns that are crowns for those things done in this life. But you're giving those back to Jesus. So when it's all said and done, we're all walking away from the Bema seat going, I'm just glad I'm here. There's no barrios in heaven. There's no disadvantaged people in heaven. There's no places you don't want to live in heaven. There's just heaven, and it's all glorious. So we're all going to be delighted to be there. So ultimately, God squares away this maturity thing by taking us all to his heaven. So what do you think James is getting at as he says these things? He's talking about your life here and now. We want to be more already there. In other words, I want to be so ready for heaven that there's almost nothing that needs to change in my life. 
I take my last breath and there's not much for God to do because I was so much like Jesus. I matured so far. My life is so much like Christ that when I'm glorified, it's just kind of a little blip change and boom, I'm there. Not I'm way down here and my life is completely falling apart and the Lord has to completely do the work of sanctification that should have happened over my entire lifetime. He's having to do all of that so he can bring me into glory. That's what maturity is. It's ultimately me saying, God, whatever you need to put in my life, whatever I need to know in my life, whatever I need to be and do in my life so that I can be more like you, help me to mature. But I need to ask. God, if there's some wicked way in me, take it out. If there's some good thing you want to use, glorify yourself in it. It's all about us being ultimately totally in line with what God wants for us day by day, moment by moment. That's going to require that we're tested. It's going to require that what happens in our life is this vast experience we have that often contains suffering is for a purpose. Knowing that the testing of our faith produces, as we saw last time, patience. It takes patience to run the race. It takes patience to be mature. One of the things that I've learned as I've gotten older is I'm getting into those grandpa years. It's like, man, I'm sure glad I wasn't, I wasn't a grandfather when I was younger. I would have messed that up. Now I know that kids can live on sugar. Just kidding. No, you know some things, right? You know, you're... We, we figure out a few things as we get a little older and mature. And the same is true in our spiritual life. As we mature in Christ, some things that we used to believe, we set aside. It's like, Lord, no, I was wrong about that. And I agree with you now. And other things that we didn't know, we now actually know. Truths that we didn't have before, we now have. Beautiful thing is, what ultimately will happen is it'll be that 1 Corinthians 13 gift, love hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things, love endures, love never fails. We just simply get loving just like Jesus is already. That final mark of maturity, that thing that we should all strive for, is to be just like King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Now have some of the pastors come down front after service. They'll be available for prayer. If you've got something on your heart, some area you need some wisdom in, you want to pray with somebody for it, that would be a great thing to do. We're all just works in progress, church. Be kind to each other. Be gentle with each other. Be understanding. Lift each other up. We need that. The world has enough negativity in it, so let's be positive about the growth that we have in Jesus. Amen? Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for who we are in you. Lord, thank you that you keep working with us and massaging who we are and making us more into the image of Jesus. And Lord, we do need wisdom, wisdom in every area of life, what to do, what not to do, God. So very often it's really what not to do, where not to go. God, would you help us with those things that might be potentially damaging and dangerous? Help us to stay on track, dead in the center of your
will. Lord, we thank you for your patience and your kindness and your gentleness and your meekness. Lord, your control that you haven't poured out upon us what we deserve. You haven't given us judgment. You haven't poured out your justice. You've given us mercy, showered us with grace. You've forgiven us of our sin. Help us to be like that to others. Father, thank you for your goodness. We ask that you would bless us. Send us out with joy and lead us with peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.